Welcome to Engage Arizona, public policy for daily life. In this episode, we take a hard look at where America is spiritually and what that could mean this election year. George Barna discusses disturbing trends among some who call themselves Christians. He talks about his role at Arizona Christian University's Cultural Research Center and how he is hopeful a cultural transformation is possible. Here now is Kathy Harrod. Well, my guest today on Engage Arizona is Dr. George Barna. Dr. Barna is considered the most quoted person in the Christian church today. More likely than not, your pastor is quoted George Barna in a sermon or a blog post. If you've heard a statistic or report on Christians and worldview voting patterns, the source likely was some of Dr. Barna's research. He's conducted groundbreaking research on worldview, cultural transformation, spiritual development, and politics. His research, polling, and strategic input has been used by parachurch ministries, churches, the military, and yes, even presidential candidates. He's been a teaching pastor of a large multi-ethnic church and helped to start several churches. His academic credentials include a doctorate from Dallas Baptist University, master's degrees from Rutgers, and a degree from Boston College. But most importantly for us in Arizona, George George Barna has joined Arizona Christian University as a professor to lead the Cultural Research Center. ACU's mission is to transform culture with biblical truth. The center's executive director is Dr. Tracy Munsell, a familiar name to many of you, and my longtime friend and ally. And of course, the president of Arizona Christian University is Lynn Munsell, the founding president of Center for Arizona Policy, with whom I served for nine years. Well, George, welcome to Engage Arizona, and welcome to our state. Glad to have you on. Well, and before um, I get into some of the, the details today, your bio says that you like to experience the ocean. And I'm one of those desert dwellers that loves the ocean. And so let's just start off with, is it surfing? Is it gazing at the ocean? Is it swimming? How do you experience the ocean? You know, for, for me, I, I love cruises, but I also love just laying on the beach and watching the waves roll in. That's almost hypnotic to me. I, I spent some time once trying to figure out why do I like the ocean so much? And I realized, I think to me, it's the most graphic and tangible representation of the magnitude of God and the power of God, the immutability of God. It, to me, it's just a great representation of many of the characteristics of God. Oh, I agree. I love cruises. I love being on the ocean. And you know, I've already, I'm not sure when the next cruise is going to happen in the current um, state, state of things, but um, I will be at the ocean sometime, I hope, this summer. Well, let's, um, what is the new Cultural Research Center at ACU and, and what's the objective? Well, what we're trying to do are a couple of things. First of all, we know that all of our decisions as human beings stem from our worldview. So we believe it's important to be tracking the state of biblical worldview in America. And so every year we will do an annual survey, the American Worldview Inventory, where we will be gauging what proportion of American adults has a biblical worldview. The second type of research that relates to that has to do with cultural transformation. ACU is all about raising up students who not only have a biblical worldview, but who are going to take that worldview and translate it into some kind of cultural transformational activity as part of their calling, part of the gifting that God has given to them, all of those things. So we are creating benchmark surveys to help us gauge what's going on in each of the seven dominant cultural dimensions. 
and give leaders, not just those who graduate from ACU, but all leaders across the country, a better understanding of what's going on with, for instance, government and politics, schools and education, church and religion, family, business and commerce, information and news media, arts and entertainment, those seven dimensions, because those are really the seven powerhouse dimensions that determine the nature of our culture. Let's um, define some terms. When you say biblical worldview, what do you mean? Everybody has a worldview, and essentially our worldview is the moral, emotional, spiritual, and intellectual filter that we have that enables us to observe and understand and interpret and respond to reality. It gives us a sense of who we are in the world and a sense of who we can become, who we believe we're meant to be, who we want to be. And so the worldview is essentially our our key decision-making tool. If you think of a computer, it has an operating system. And our worldview is a human being's operating system. It's the thing that puts everything together and drives us forward in life. So you have many choices of a worldview. There are probably about a dozen or so dominant or popular, I should say, worldviews in American culture today. One of those is a biblical worldview, but we know that only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. What does that mean? It means that they're making their decisions primarily based upon God's truths and principles as given to us in the Bible, only 6%. That means that more than 9 out of 10 Americans have a worldview that's something else other than that. So we've got postmodernism, existentialism, secular humanism, Marxism, all kinds of alternatives. And those are the ones that people are gravitating to. The dominant one in America today is postmodernism. And some of the foundations of postmodernism, for instance, would be that there is no such thing as absolute moral truth. You determine truth for you. Nobody can tell you if you're right or wrong. It's up to you. The only things that really matter in life are your relationships and your experiences. You know, it goes on and on from there, but you can start to see how different that would be from a biblical worldview, which says there is truth. God gives it to us in his word. When we violate it, there are consequences and so on. So very different approaches to life. And uh, when we talk about a worldview, we're talking about trying to find out what is the worldview that people have, how many people have it, and what difference is it making in your life. Then the term cultural transformation, what do you mean? Define cultural transformation. Well, culture is that context in which we live, which is a combination of all the symbols, traditions, customs, relationships, information, all of that and more put together. That's our daily and moment-to-moment context. And so those of us who study culture try to figure out, well, what determines the character, the nature, the direction, the uh, velocity of that culture. And a a number of people have come to the conclusion that there really are seven dominant elements in culture, those seven ones that I named a few minutes ago. And so if you want to understand the heartbeat of a culture and where it's headed, you have to be apprised of those elements because together they define and they continue to develop what our culture is. How did you get involved in this research area and what was your interest? Uh, Is it a calling? I mean, this is a a unique niche um, that's very needed, but how did you get involved in this? Yeah, it's interesting because when you talk about calling, 
that was such a new concept for me once I became a Christian. Prior to that, I thought, okay, either I was going to be a major league baseball player or I was going to be a bass player in some band that was touring the world all the time. And as I came to find out, neither of those was God's calling on my life. You know, I, I then realized that he had called me and gifted me in ways that enabled me to be a support to other leaders by giving them the kind of information that they need to make good decisions. Your decisions are only as good as the information on which they're based. And what I was finding was that so much of the information that related to faith and culture either was non-existent or... So I felt honored, really privileged by God to be able to create at first the Barna Research Group, and then after I sold that 10 years ago to be able to be the founder of American Culture and Faith Institute, and now the Cultural Research Center, to continually try to provide that information that will guide leaders in their decision-making so that ultimately we can lead the culture to a place where we're honoring Christ and we're following his principles. So this fall, what, in March or April, you, the center released its first major groundbreaking baseline um, American Worldview Inventory for 2020. Tell us about the inventory and some of the key points from the research. Yeah, that really stemmed out of something that was my first project at Arizona Christian, which was creating a worldview inventory for all of our students. Because the idea there is because we're completely focused on developing the worldview of students at ACU, uh, we want to have a way of measuring how are we doing. So I worked for about four or five months with the faculty and staff. They were trying to figure out what does it mean to have a, a worldview and a biblical worldview and how would you measure that? So came up with a, an inventory to evaluate that with our students. They take it at the beginning of every year and we measure how well we're doing on campus. But then we wanted to be able to move off campus and say what's going on in the culture. So I took that survey that I created for our students, reduced it to about 51 worldview questions, looking at both beliefs and behavior, because my contention after having done national research for almost 40 years now is that you do what you believe. And so we don't want to measure just beliefs. We also need to find out, but what does your behavior tell us about your beliefs? Because your behavior tells us as much about that as your words do. So we have all those questions in that survey. We did it with a big national sample, 2,000 adults randomly selected from across the country, interviewed by both telephone and online to make sure that we could get everybody and have a representative sample. And uh, then we, we put together the data and divided it across the many different segments of the population. So for instance, we could compare people who are devoted Christians to people who are not at all involved in Christianity and so forth. So we have a lot of different subgroups that we analyze in that database. And the findings, I know one of the findings that I noticed that a lot of it jumps out. I mean, we know that a lot of people who profess to be Christians are not living out of a biblical worldview, but that I think if I have it right, 41% believe the Bible is the word of God, yet only 14% of those of those people believe they have a biblical worldview. So the disconnect between the people that will say they're Christians, although say they, yes, the Bible is the word of God, but yet there's not, there's not living out of it. So what about the disconnect? I mean, you see that? prominent, I think. Yeah, and there's a lot of different ways to dissect that, but maybe the most basic one is to recognize that 
people know some principles that are in the Bible. But where it begins to disconnect is, first of all, having a, a grand narrative for their life based on biblical principles. They may know a few stories, a few characters, a few commands, but they've never really put it together into a comprehensive, primarily Bible-based philosophy of life, if you will, which is what a, a worldview is. And so instead, what I've discovered in the research, I started doing worldview research probably about 25 years ago. And survey after survey after survey, tens of thousands of people looking at their worldview. And one of the things I finally realized is I have yet to identify or encounter my first person who actually has a pure worldview, whether it's a biblical worldview, Marxism, secular humanism, whatever the worldview is, nobody has a pure worldview. What we tend to do is we get exposed to a lot of information from all these different worldviews. And we pick and choose the elements that we want. And we wrap it together into something that makes sense to us, something that makes us feel comfortable, something that we feel we can live out so we're internally consistent. And that's how we roll. But very few people have a, 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 even a biblical worldview. None of them have one that's pure. So when we look at the, the disconnect factors, so much of it has to do with the fact that we're exposed to so much other information. We don't really love God more than we love ourselves. We don't really love his word more than we love our feelings. And so we don't tend to buy into what God has given to us for our own benefit. We buy into the things that the world is given us clues and cues and messages all the time. Ooh, this will make you happy. This will make you feel good. This will be fulfilling. You'll find this satisfying. And so we buy into that instead. That reminds me of some of the worship songs in many of our evangelical churches that, you know, it's all about you, Lord, or, you know, that type of thing. And, you know, we, we sing those songs, but do we ever stop and think about the words that we're singing and are we living out those words? And, you know, it's, oh, my gosh, I, you know, what did I just say? And I do I believe that or not? Uh, the inventory was kind of interesting about the shared purpose of life, you know, share about the purpose of life and people, um, you know, looking at the purpose of life, not exactly being what we knew from the Westminster Conf Confession, what to um, what to serve God and enjoy him forever. Or, um, but it's it's very different um, about what, what we look at the purpose of life or success and what that means. Yeah, it, it really is. And when you mention something like, you know, the, the Westminster Confession, I would guess that. 80% or more, even of your listeners, you know, much less <laughs> right. the rest oh, yeah. of the country, have no clue what that is. Uh, so, yeah, when we ask people what they think is the shared or universal purpose of life, most people believe that there is one, uh, but, but there's a lot of different ideas about what that might be. The, the most popular idea about uh, purpose or meaning in life is that it's about experiencing happiness and fulfillment. If that isn't American, I don't know what is. <laughs> Certainly not biblical, we know that, uh, because that's not a, a promise that God gives to us. It's really not the point of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross and our life here serving him and, and, and knowing him. You know, we, we looked at how many people would say that knowing, loving, and serving God is the, the ultimate purpose of the universal purpose of humanity. And we found that less than one out of five Americans say that that's the case. So 
when we talk about the disconnect, you know, between what the Bible teaches and what our worldview is, it, it's kind of like a, a, a slow drip torture test where, okay, we may believe that Jesus is the son of God. He died on the cross for me. But then we may not believe the Bible is absolute truth. We may not be, believe that our purpose is to know, love, and serve God. And so you start putting all of these things together, as we do in the inventory, 51 different questions. And before you know it, you find that very few people have even 80%, four out of five of, of these kinds of questions, where they've got a biblical perspective. And frankly, that's what I set the standard at. I'm not saying you have to have it 100% right, because we'd have zero people with the biblical worldview. If you get 80% more of these questions answered in a way where your beliefs and your behavior are consistent with, with scriptural mandates, then we would put you in that biblical worldview category, recognizing we're all in process, we all need to continue to grow, but at least there's a really strong foundation there. But yeah, the, the disconnect is massive. Well, and for the, the listeners, you can go on the Arizona Christian University website, the Culture Research Center, and there's a series of papers that are very informative about the worldview inventory that I encourage all the listeners to check out. The findings, when I went through some of the inventory, that it also reminded me, one of my favorite books by A.W. Tozer is called The World, This World, Playground or Battleground. And Tozer talks about the early days of Christians in America that conceived the world to be a battleground between sin and the devil and hell on one hand and God and righteousness and heaven on the other. And the hymns were like onward Christian soldiers. And that today's Christians, it, it's the world is a playground, that we're not here to fight, but we're here to frolic. And... And then Tozer concludes um, part of this writing with saying, it's the bound duty of all Christians to re-examine their spiritual philosophy in light of the Bible. I mean, thoughts on that contrast. I mean, that have we gotten to this place? I mean, because that's even your research shows di big differences from 30 years ago. It does. And uh, one of the things that we look at, of course, in the inventory has to do with people's perspectives on uh, the role of faith, on the nature of God, on the existence of Satan or the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the, the kind of life that Jesus led. And we look at all that, and, and by the way, thank you for bringing up Tozer. He's probably one of my three or four favorite uh, Christian authors, any authors. And uh, what we find is, for instance, we've gone from 25 years ago, three out of four Americans believe that God could be described as the all-knowing, all-powerful, uh, perfect, just creator of the universe who still rules the world today. It's gone from three-quarters of people buying that perspective down to 51%, just half. That's a big change in a short period mm -hmm. of time. Uh, we look at you know how many people would say that's the nature of God, and we know that he loves people unconditionally. It's possible to know with certainty that he exists. He has a reason for everything that happens in our lives, and he's involved in our lives. That brings it down to just one out of every 10 Americans, 10%. And that's fundamental Christianity. There's no highfalutin theology there. So you redefine God, and then we look at Satan, we know people now are more confident in the existence of Satan than they are of the God of Israel. We look at the fact that a large proportion of Americans, almost half, believe that Jesus sinned when he was on earth. 
Then you look at the fact that about six out of 10 Americans say there is no such thing as the Holy Spirit. So now we're throwing out the concept of the Trinity. I mean, you just keep layering these perspectives one on top of another. And then you have someone like Tozer or Schaefer or Colson or whoever, who will bring up the idea that every moment that we live, because it's a biblical idea, it wasn't theirs originally, we live in the context of spiritual war. There's a, con, a, a spiritual war raging around us every moment of every day. We're players in that war. We choose our side to battle for every moment of every day. And you look at what we believe, how we believe it, why we believe it, and the implications in terms of how we live it out. And what you find is that the American church, I would say, lacks power, it lacks impact, it lacks influence, because we're not fighting that war. We're fighting a different war. As I've done the research with churches, the war that we're fighting is to put butts in seats, is to put money in the bank account, is to put more square footage on the campus. Those are the things that turn our crank, as opposed to why Jesus died on the cross. He didn't die on the cross for any of those things. we got to get back to the basics. So how do we do that? I mean, I, what's the encouragement? How do, I mean, do you see pastors responding to this research or just kind of, you know, I mean, still focused on church growth? Yeah, you know, years ago, uh, Al Gore wrote a book called An Inconvenient Truth. And, <laughs> and, and uh, I couldn't stand the book, but I, I love the title. And I think that title pretty well characterizes the worldview research. It's very inconvenient to hear these things. Because when we talk with senior pastors about what they're doing related to worldview, what we found was that currently more than four out of five senior pastors of Protestant churches say that they're doing an excellent or very good job at helping their people to develop a biblical worldview. And, you know, we asked them, well, how do you know that you're being successful in ministry in that way? And then they, they said, well, you know, we measure stuff. And then they measure the things I just alluded to, attendance, giving, number of programs, number of staff, and square footage, all irrelevant. You know, Jesus talked about, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go make disciples of everybody in the world. And then in the, the Gospel of John, it was good enough to give us three criteria that we could be looking at to figure out, are we doing the job he called us to? So John 8, John 13, John 15, he lays out, you know, you will be my disciples if you follow my commands. You will be my disciples if you love one another. You will be my disciples if you produce much fruit. Why aren't we measuring those things? Why aren't we wrapping everything that we do in our churches around those things? And given that we know we make our decisions based on our worldview, and our research has been showing for more than a quarter century now, and I've been talking about it, that a person's worldview develops between 15 months of age and 13 years of age. So why are we treating children like people to be placated with a bunch of games and stories and songs? This is where the battle is won or lost in the minds and hearts of children. Adults, we find, pretty much don't change. In fact, one of the findings from one of our earlier pieces of worldview research is most Americans, a vast majority of Americans, will die believing what they believed at age 13. And so that being the case, we better get on the job with kids. We better focus on the things that Jesus said discipleship was about. Measurement is important because you get what you measure, but you gotta measure the right stuff. So at Arizona Christian University, you'll be doing ongoing research. Will you also be teaching courses? Yes, although that's not the primary focus of my time there. Uh, the research takes up an enormous amount of time. 
And uh, I, I look forward to teaching a lot of the students the things that we're learning right now. I'm, I'm doing more guest lecturing in classes of sharing things in situations where a professor will say, you know, George, if you would bring this information in, that would give us another angle for them to grab onto and say, oh, I get it. That's what it looks like. That's what's going on. And, and so, yeah, I'm really enjoying that. The kids are great to work well, and when you said that you know, all the students are given that inventory, the 51 questions, and then you're going to measure it after they leave ACU, I assume, does that mean will you be doing annual surveys or following up with students after they have graduated from ACU to measure the impact? Yeah, it's even a little more in-depth than that because they're not taking it when they come and when they leave. We're doing it with them at the beginning of every academic year. Every student will repeat it. So if they're there for four years, they'll take the test actually five times before they come in the beginning of each of their sophomore, junior, and senior years, and then at graduation, because we want to be able to track how did we do. We're making a, parents to, a promise to parents, you're paying us a bunch of money, and you're expecting us to do this particular job to help you in the raising of your child. We, need the, we feel that we need to measure how well we're doing at that. If we're not getting the job done, we're going to change our process. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, very critical tool I'm frankly kind of shocked that universities, Christian universities across the country aren't already doing this because for years, universities have making promises to parents, this is what we're going to produce. Well, where, where's the, the measurement? Well, that's what you said at the beginning, that were the actions. Um, there may be a lot of words, but, but where are the actions? Well, I want to just ask you, you know, I know you've done a lot of um, election work in the past and I've heard some of your discussions. You know, when, and when you talk about evangelicals and the different types, and you, we hear that 80% of evangelicals voted for Trump, or whatever the number is, that voted for President Trump in 2016. You know, how, yeah, I always kind of question that number a little bit, but how much do you think are those, I mean, obviously those aren't necessarily Bible-believing Christians that are in church, even even people that are going to church on a regular basis, but is it just self-identified Christians? Or I just was curious if, if you have any thoughts on that. Oh, boy, do I have thoughts. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a Pandora's box for me. because right. I think that most, literally, most of the survey research that's done in America that relates to people's faith dimension is bad research. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of that is because we allow people to identify themselves in particular ways based on misleading information they're getting from the media. And so, for instance, when you look at a piece of research from most research firms, they will ask people, are you a born-again or evangelical Christian? Well, we're finding from their studies that roughly a third of Americans say they are. Well, we know from our research where we don't ask those kind of questions, we ask people what they believe and what they do, because that's really the measure of a person, not how they describe themselves. So when we do that, you know, we would find, for instance, that roughly six or seven percent of Americans are evangelicals based on what they believe and what they do about those beliefs. We've got a group that we've labeled SAGE-CONS, which stands for Spiritually Active, Governance-Engaged, Conservative Christians. Those are people who are really devoted to their faith, evangelically inclined, evangelistically inclined as well, Uh, But because they believe the Bible is truth, that they've been called to live in accordance with the Bible, they try to live their lives having influence in every dimension of the culture because they believe that's what the Bible teaches. And so that includes politics and government. 
So compared to other people, even other people in the church across the country, they pay much more attention to government and politics. Uh, they are more active in government and politics. They're interacting with other people about these matters. So it's a very different group. So we're the only ones actually in the country that measure that. And we find that they behave very differently than every other group. Evangelicals, traditionally, they're now being divided between conservatives and liberals. There's a big shift going on theologically in America, even among evangelicals. Well, and I, on the SageCons, how did the SageCons vote with President Trump in 2016? I mean, do you have a percentage or estimate on that? Oh, gosh, we tracked them really carefully. It was fascinating because when the election cycle started, uh, Mr. Trump was, I think, fifth or sixth in terms of their preference of candidates. There were all these other evangelical candidates that they were gravitating to. He wasn't really that attractive uh, to them in the beginning. But then once he won the nomination, he had maybe two-thirds of sage cons who said, well, yeah, I guess I'll vote for him. But then as the campaign unfolded, there were two particular issues that were of interest to sage cons, Supreme Court nominations and abortion policy. And when they found out the incredible difference between Mr. Trump and Mrs. Clinton, they realized that they had no choice. So come election day, make a long story really short, 91% of sage cons turned out to vote. 93% of those people voted for Mr. Trump. No other segment voted as extensively. No other segment voted as, um, what would you call it, comprehensively for Mr. Trump. Well, one thing that, I, that I've seen within the church, it, sometimes I'll say, I mean, we certainly see where President Trump has divided families, has divided pastors, has divided churches. And I'm sure worldview comes into this to some extent. And certainly my generation would be very concerned about legacy and how could you not vote on the basis of the life issue and the Supreme Court issue. But, you know, sometimes I've said, I have what we have, we have what we, what I would call Franklin Graham pastors and Russell Moore pastors. And by that, you know, I mean Franklin Graham pastors that would be very supportive of Trump, who would, um, you know, be very much in favor, of, not, not his character in some of his tweets, but certainly would support his policies. Were there, then you have some strong evangelicals who would say that would be never Trumpers or hesitant to um, support President Trump. I mean, do you see that divide? When you say the 91 and the 93 percent figures, maybe that divide is not as real as I see it anecdotally. No, it, it's very real. When we talk about sage cons, we're talking about only 8 percent of the population. So if you understand that 71 percent of Americans call themselves Christians, about 43 percent currently, I think it is, are what we would call notional Christians, people who don't know Christ as their savior, but they associate themselves with Christianity. You know, they believe their salvation is up to their own good works and and so forth. Then you look at the other 30% or so who are born again Christians, you know, they get divided into different segments. You got the sage cons, you got non-sage evangelicals, you've got non-evangelical born agains. You know, within each of those categories, very different positions on issues for very different reasons. Mm -hmm. And so much of it is because they have a very different understanding of what the, the Christian faith calls them to do and to be. What at, at this election year, we're recording this obviously in, uh, in 2020, your outlook for this year's election, what you see happening and, and the, frankly, the pandemic's impact on, on what's ahead in these next few months. Yeah, well, nobody's quite sure what the pandemic is going to do to us. I mean, there, there are surveys, but everybody's just kind of guessing at this point. 
Uh, a lot of it will have to do with what happens with the economy. I think that's going to continue to be the big issue. Uh, certainly, Mr. Biden has some uh, challenges right now in terms of, of his moral activities and whatnot. Uh, Mr. Trump has some of those same kinds of challenges. So, you know, we're back in a situation where people don't know what to make of either of these candidates. Uh, nobody, I can't say nobody, but uh, a lot of people, the majority of Americans are not excited about either of the candidates. So in some ways, it's back to 2016, where I believe it's going to go down to the wire. Battleground states are the ones that are going to determine what the ultimate outcome is. And one of the things I'd love for, for your audience to keep in mind is that we will be bowled over with survey after survey after poll after poll telling us what the national population thinks. It doesn't matter. What matters is what happens in the states because you don't win with the popular vote, you win with the electoral college vote. And so we've got to be looking at the key states to figure out what's going to go on there. That's what will de determine the outcome. And Arizona certainly is one of those states this year. What happens with the United States Senate? What happens with the presidential race? Our state legislature is a target for being flipped from being pro-life to not being pro-life. So, yeah, it is a, uh, you know, when people say, well, we're tired of hearing this is the most important election of your lifetime. Well, guess what? It once again may be the most important election of our lifetime. So just just keep thinking that, that people, yeah, it certainly is a, a time to pray and to um, to be active and engage in this year. Well, to, for people to engage with a cultural research center, they go to Arizona Christian Education's website. Is there a mailing list? Is there a way? Do they just access the papers at, on the website? They can do all of those things. I mean, if you go to the website, you can download any of the research that we've put out. And I'm putting out a new report every two weeks or so based on current research. So there's that. They can sign up for a newsletter. Things will be sent to them automatically. Uh, we will be putting on events where myself and others will be discussing the research and its implications for the church, for the country, you know, for families and so forth. So yeah, that, the best thing to do is to stay in touch with us through the website. And they can either go to culturalresearchcenter.com or they can go to Arizona Christian. I wrote it down to make sure I had it in front of me. Well, we um, we are glad that you will be in Arizona some and applaud the work. And so I want to uh, encourage our listeners to check out, sign up for the newsletter, um, go to the forums when ACU is sponsoring them. And also, I just want to mention for our listeners that um, hopefully in the fall, um, Center for Arizona Policy intends to bring Dr. Tel Del Tackett's new series, The Engagement Project. There will be another small group, worldview-oriented um, type of small group activity, not unlike the Truth Project that Del Tackett did a number of years ago and a lot of Arizonans participated in. So would really challenge and encourage everyone to um, read the worldview inventory from ACU. Consider um, where you are in your life, what your philosophy is, what your outlook is, and if you are living by biblical um, principles or not, and to examine those areas. And um, we just thank you, George Barna, for, for the incredible um, contributions that you've made to the body of Christ through your work. Well, thank you. It's a team effort. I appreciate you helping us to sensitize people to it. Yeah, thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Engage Arizona, public policy for daily life. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe rate, and give a review on any podcast platform you use. For more information, visit azpolicy.org.